Welcome everyone to, to this latest uh, Zebra Campfire event. We're still not in person, but um, I'm actually growing to, growing to love these events and seeing everyone's faces up close on the screen. So it's really good to, to see so many familiar faces and also some new faces. Today's event is uh, People, Planet and Profit, and specifically talking about accelerating our progress towards impact. And it seemed like a, a really sensible time to be having this conversation, because certainly our sense is that as we emerge from the, from the pandemic, not sure that is actually a concept that works, but as we start to emerge from the acute phase of the, the pandemic, we're definitely getting a sense that people are reevaluating their priorities. And we're definitely getting a sense that people are turning their attention more to the positive and negative impacts of actions and behaviours, whether that's at an individual level or at an organisational level. And if you look at you know, the most recent period, we've seen from a planetary level, we've seen wildfires, we've seen hurricanes, we've seen earthquakes. We've, at the social side, we've seen the, 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 the sort of impact of inequality in terms of how the, the pandemic affected communities, depending on poverty, depending on access to medicine and vaccines. And there's been a real, you know, certainly in the, in the media, in our, in our own awareness, there's been a real heightened understanding, I think, and appreciation of some of the complexities and the issues and the inequalities in the world. And we think people finding the time and the space to go back and start to think about those, particularly from an organisational level. So if we look at the last 12 to 18 months, it's really been a, a period characterised by an, an acute sense of individual and collective responsibility, I think, for, for or sense of responsibility around some of these issues and how we respond to them. And at the same time, we've, we've had this sort of raging debate from um, the health sector to uh, economics to most recently national security about the, the role and the relationship between government, business and the individual and who, and who has responsibility for uh, both creating and addressing issues um, at a local and at a global scale. So it's an interesting time. So for the next hour, let's talk, I think, about responsibility. Let's talk about um, impact. I want to introduce our four key contributors. Um, today and I'm going to give them a, a moment to, to, to speak for themselves and tell, tell you a little bit about who they are and, and their organisations. But I also want to make the point that we consider all of you to be contributors, so please do contribute through the chat, through putting the electronic hand up or just diving in and saying something. It's very much a conversation today. So our, our key contributors, uh, Lisa Barkley, who's the Executive Director of Investments at Nesta. Uh, welcome, Lisa. Uh, Steve Butterworth, who's the CEO at Neighbourly. Eleanor Kay, who's Head of Operations at the Newton Venture Programme, and uh, Chris Willis-Pickup, who is a, a Taylor Vinters partner who heads the charities and social ventures um, part of the business. So I'm going to hand over to, to, to those uh, four esteemed individuals to introduce themselves, and perhaps I'll start with Eleanor. So nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm the Head of Operations at the Newton Venture Programme. Uh, the Newton Venture Programme is an investor training programme for investors and also for those who want to break into the VC industry. I should talk about our mission. Our mission is to disrupt the current VC ecosystem by making the practice of investing in early stage ventures globally widespread and accessible. And our vision, which might seem grandiose, but we're hoping we'll get there is that by 2030 venture investors will be 50% female and 50% people from underrepresented groups. We just had our cohort, our first cohort back in April. It was a roaring success. Uh, 60 students um, completed the program and our second is due to start at the end of this month. Um, and both of our cohorts had over 50% female and 50% people from underrepresented groups representing there. Newton is backed by Local Globe, um, a seed and impact investor and London Business School. So um, I'm really happy to bring our message to everyone here. And thank you again for having me. Great. Thanks, Ellen. And I, I look forward to coming back to that topic of how we can think about the representation in the investor community and the, and the skills and, le and learning in the investor community as a driver for impact. So that's that. looking forward to talking further about that. Lisa. Thanks, Matt. And um, really excited to hear about that programme, Eleanor, and I'll be in touch with you because one of the challenges we face uh, as an impact investor or any investor is access to diverse talents. So these kind of programmes are really valuable and welcome. Um, so I'm Lisa Barclay. I'm Executive Director of Investments at Nesta. Nesta is the UK's innovation agency for social good. So we look at how we can harness innovation for social or environmental benefit. And as part of that, Nesta has been an investor for 20 years and the 
for the last 10 years an impact investor, where we look to invest in broadly tech startups, uh, early stage tech startups, where there's a strong commercial proposition, but an equally strong social or environmental impact baked into the commercial model. So that when we make an investment, we're looking for both a financial return and a, a measurable and um, demonstrable social or environmental impact. Um, we, we look at uh, sectors such as ed tech, health tech, and increasingly climate change. Um, we're investing in C to Series A type deals. And myself, I've been in, in impact investing for the last, well, more than 16 years, um, both as an advisor and an investor. Great, thanks, Lisa. That's 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 great, and I and I think you touched on I think their measuring impact, and I think that's a topic that we definitely want to come back to. Actually, what does what does impact look like in terms of how we can measure it and, and assess it? Steve, thanks, Matt. Great to be here too. You know, to be amongst all of you guys today. I'm the CEO at Nably. Nably is a a community investment and engagement platform. What we do is is connect big businesses and uh, global brands with with thousands of vetted what we call sort of community impact organizations so local good causes we provide a way for businesses to donate time money or, or surplus product to, to many local good causes i think the, the challenge has always been that businesses want to support local communities but there's there's no sort of easy way for them to do that at scale and also also very difficult for them to be able to measure the impact as, as well as matt said we'll, we'll come back to that later on in the in the discussion so very much about how you know navy as a platform is facilitating that local connection and then being able to, to facilitate that giving but there is a public side to the platform as well so it's not just a, a logging tool that sits behind a, a firewall that's just sort of used to evidence the impact that a business might have but also to be able to showcase what that organization is doing whether that be the corporate and being able to evidence their their local social impact uh, and environmental impact as well but also the the opportunity for the local good cause to be able to evidence their impact as well so bringing to life that contribution as well, which is a, a really important part of, of where the, the, the giving part from a, a corporate perspective becomes you know, that much more authentic. And if it is around how you can then build out trust associated with you know, how responsible a, a business is, maybe obviously plays a, a part in that. We're definitely not the, uh, the only solution in that regard, but you know, we have a, a role to play. So uh, you know, again, Matt, great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Great. Good to have you. And um, really interested in the practical side of what you do. I think that's, um, fascinating for businesses to actually engage with how we can how we can actually do things that aren't aren't grand gestures but are actually actionable things that can be done on a on an organization on a daily basis and and finally chris let's pick up thanks very much matt well, it's, it's nice to very nice to see this community again um zebra community still going in very strong and still with this great focus on on impact and purpose so i'm a partner of, of matt so taylor vintage i lead our worked with charities and social ventures and i think one of the one of the biggest trends I've seen kind of in parallel really with this, this Sebra project is the increasing focus on social ventures and a, and a slight move away from the traditional charity vehicles as a way to doing good. And there's just been a, a tendency for social entrepreneurs and for businesses to be looking for different ways to do good that are different from donating money to a charity or setting up a charitable foundation. And I think alongside that, one of the, the fundamental trends I've seen is a, is a move away from purpose as being the guiding star, I suppose, of activity towards impact. And so this question of impact measurement, and it's not just about coming to something with a positive motive, it's actually about what, what you can achieve and, and how you can demonstrate what you've achieved. And there, there are pros and cons of that, and then we'll come on to that, I'm sure. So I'm, I'm really interested in exploring those topics and, and thinking about how the charity world can work with the business world and what, what sort of creative new opportunities that creates for doing, doing this stuff even better. Great, thanks, Chris. So I told you they were esteemed. That's a good that's a good panel. I'm happy with that. Thank you all. And um, really looking forward to, to hearing more. So, look, I thought I, I thought we'd kick off talking about responsibility, because I think responsibility is is probably the the context that that our individual sort of sense of priorities around impact sits within. It's within our personal and collective sense of responsibility. So I wanted to, to ask the, the panel really what you know, sitting here today, what is a responsible business? And and who determines what responsible means? You know, is that is it obvious or is that something that we make individual or collective assessments around? So I want to throw those two questions out to the panel. What is a responsible business and who determines what responsibility looks like? Lisa, do you want to kick off on that one? Sure. 
I mean, at the, at the very kind of base level, I think a responsible business is one which is run with regard to a range of stakeholders, not just exclusively for the benefit of shareholders and profit maximization. And those stakeholders might include customers, suppliers, the local community, environment, employees, shareholders, and, and more broadly governance issues. Um, I think the question of who determines what is responsible, what responsible means, obviously there's a you know, question of law and policy, which will set the kind of baseline. But then it, it comes, I think, to, um, to, to the, the business itself, the, the, the management and the board of that business in terms of what the standards that they want to set are and how that impacts uh, on their business. Uh, from a variety of perspectives. No, I, I agree with you, Lisa, and I think I think you know everything you say there is absolutely correct. And I and I just wanted to add on there that the responsibility of the business is also on how we act internally as well as what we're putting out to the outside. And at Newton, in particular, we are looking at the responsibility on on our staff and the cohort that we're putting through. The program and we feel very responsible for their their future and you know what we can do to really help their success and I think you know there's responsibility in regards to how we hire our staff for example um, you know how can we make sure that we are responsibly hiring the right people for the job we, we actually use blind hiring we don't see any CVs um, names industry um, background um, in the first um, sections and we tried to keep hiring as blind as possible to make sure that the best people are are through to the right job and I think as a responsible business it is down to us to set these standards and make sure that we are setting these standards ourselves and not necessarily always going along the governance lines. Well, I think just to uh, uh, again e echo what both Eleanor and Lisa have said, you know, my sort of rather simplistic view of responsible business is that you're acting in the best interest of all stakeholders. Um, and it's a line I'm sure you'll hear echoed throughout the conversation today. And it underpins you know, a lot of um, various sort of standards that one might as a business sign up to, whether that be the, you know, the sort of B Corp certification or the good business charter or even sort of the you know, UN global, you know, global compact. So you know, from my perspective, I think that's a good starting point. I think from the responsibility perspective, you know, I think it's kind of both top down and, and bottom up. And actually, it's ensuring that what is agreed as a business, which I guess ultimately would start at you know, being set out by the, the board, is baked into the DNA of the organisation. So everybody understands, you know, what it means to be part of that business. And, and everyone, therefore, from a decision making perspective, is using, you know, uh, appropriate context. Um, and I guess that then you know, leads into the way that you know, an organisation you know, is, is being run throughout rather than it having to always be you know, sense checked from uh, you know, a, a particular individual. Because I think you know, it's, you know, it's interesting to, to, to potentially sort of debate even today you know, whether there is that such thing as sort of a head of ESG in an organisation, whether that actually should just be something which sits you know, across an organisation and is integral to every person's role. I think that, that's a really interesting point, and I'm, I've been, I agree with everything that's been said. And I've just been thinking about, in a way, what's what's not a responsible business. When you know, and there's the, you see quite quite commonly, um, you know, people's first attempts, which of course have been encouraged, but having an ESG policy doesn't mean you're a responsible business, and even having a head of ESG doesn't mean you're a responsible business. So I think you know, I've got this question of what's not a responsible business. What I think. Exactly as Steve says, unless it's actually baked into your DNA and everyone is working towards that and aware of that, and it's not just on paper, it's something that the, the business lives and breathes as well, um, then I think you can be a responsible business. And I think I would I would say there's two different types who leads into another part of the conversation later as well, but I think every type of business can be a responsible business. It can look at the, the way it does business and how to do that better. Um, but only I think only some businesses will have as part of their core activities, positive impact. You know, whether it's, and the example I always think of is as, as Donon making yogurts, becoming a B Corp. Now it's great that they've become a B Corp. There isn't necessarily anything inherent in yogurt making that creates positive social or environmental impact. I mean, yes, it's food, that's great. Um, but they've decided to do that in a way that 
it aligns with the B Corp movement and, and is that, you know, an example of a good business making yogurts. And then there are other businesses of the type that Nesta would, would invest in that are through their very activities having a great positive impact on the world, you know, climate tech, ed tech, health tech. And I think it's quite important to make sure that businesses who might be responsible businesses understand that they can do that whatever their core business is. They can still do that in a more responsible way. I think there's some, some really interesting themes that run through that. So I, I, I like the, the references in a, in a couple of your answers to stakeholder greed, because I think what your sense of responsibility is and, and what being a responsible business looks like, I think, depends upon which stakeholder groups you define that by reference to and prioritise. So, you know, for, for me, that's quite an empowering thing. I think it means, you know, organisations can, there's, there's a general level of responsibility to society, to the planet, whatever it might be. But actually, in terms of in terms of the, the impact, if we're talking about impact, you can have perhaps defining that by reference to state, different stakeholder groups that you've identified and you prioritised is, um, is, is a very practical way of addressing, um, addressing those issues. The other thing that came out when I was listening to those answers was that sense that some of this is about compliance and it's about reducing your negative impact. And some of it is about genuine, genuinely about creating positive impact. And it's, it's, it's something that you have more personal responsibility for. And we use the terms um, ESG and impact investing and impact sort of interchangeably. But I, I wonder, uh, perhaps this is a question for Lisa, I mean, I wonder what we what we think the difference is between ESG and impact and impact investing. Yeah, I was, I was going to um, pick up on what Chris was saying, actually. And just to put it in context, I think I read recently ESG assets are estimated at around $100 trillion under management at the moment, and global impact invest, investing assets are valued at $715 billion at the moment. So that's just to put it in context, that ESG is becoming almost universal um, and impact investment is a drop in the ocean. So a very small subset, growing but small subset of what the markets call ESG compliance. ESG is a very broad umbrella term and often ESG and impact are used interchangeably. But actually, I think what, what uh, you were saying about ESG having bit, originally, actually, I think was a risk management approach and increasingly is becoming a value creation tool. But impact is, is it's not necessarily actually about running your business well. We take that as a given, but it's about setting out with an intention to contribute to a, a social or environmental problem and using business to, to address that problem. So by, by doing well as a business, you're also doing good uh, with some kind of social or environmental impact. I don't know if that kind of sets out the distinction sufficiently. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's interesting. And I, I mean, it comes, it, for me, that also comes back to the, to the measurement point because I think how well you're doing um, in relation to, to the impact you're trying to achieve or the compliance you're trying to achieve is, is actually a very difficult thing to assess other than at an individual organisational level because the, the relativity between different industries, different sectors, different different geographies um, can, can be a distraction. I think from, from actually saying as, as an individual organisation, are we doing enough? Are we achieving what we set out to do? Or are we looking to some sort of benchmark that, that it's very hard to apply to what, to, what we're, to what we're specifically working on? Just to add to that, Lisa, so differentiation is really important there. And you know, Chris obviously mentioned Danone earlier uh, as an organisation that you wouldn't necessarily think of you know, from an impact investing perspective, but it's actually, yeah, they're obviously looking to try to run themselves in a more responsible way. And you know, whether that, and you could obviously, similar organizations, not necessarily quite the same size, but you know, Innocent Drinks, Ellis Kitchen, you know, they're, they're, they're all organizations that are B Corps, you know, trying to be you know, better in the way that they run themselves, as opposed to perhaps you know, an organization, I guess, we're our own, where we're obviously trying to do something which is you know, having a positive impact on, on society. I think the with this, the repetitive theme that's going to come out of today's conversation is the challenge around the measurement piece because there is no global standard, and that whole ESG and acronym is thrown around now, um, you know, pretty wildly and very and very broadly, and, and and often all too often not you know not everyone in the room actually understanding what it is. And I think the 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 challenge that we have is 
everybody underst understands the importance to you know some degree or other as to you know that we need to you know run organizations that are in the best interest of making sure we've still got a planet for our kids and you know making sure that you know businesses are a vested member of, of, of society but i think that you know, until we have a way of standardizing the way that we can measure this it's going to remain sort of a, quite opaque there'll be the ongoing challenges around you know greenwashing purpose washing whatever you want to, you want to call it but i mean there are obviously some amazing articles that are out there and you know our kind of north star i guess we tend to use at the moment is the work that came off the back of the world economic forum back in 2020 where they managed to get the four big consultancies to to get their heads together and they came up with a perhaps not so snappily named article that was um released about this time last year about measuring stakeholder capitalism and i'll i'll put the link actually to that in the chat um but it's still a work in progress and there's still huge amounts to be done to get to the point where you can actually sort of measure this consistently. I think what the impact investment community brings to the, the table and Lisa, please sort of correct me here that actually I think they've, they're very, very keen and very working very, very hard on being able to standardize the reporting side to things specifically, obviously within their own investments, but that at least gives us a starting point, you know, and I think in a way that perhaps others that are coming to it who are already established businesses and trying to be more responsible are still trying to find their way. You're absolutely right. Um, and I mean, the, the fragmentation is in both ESG and impact measurement. And I've uh, been involved in a group of um, BCs looking at how we can track ESG compliance in early stage businesses, because all the current standards for ESG are geared to public markets or, or big corporates. So even within ESG in terms of how you measure, how you uh, assess uh, performance is very fragmented in terms of the standards. And similarly, um, you know, in, in impact investing, it has also been quite fragmented and bespoke. But um, in recent years, there's an organization called the Impact Management Project, which has done a really good job of um, bringing together a coalition, I think of about 2,000 um, businesses and investors uh, and key stakeholders in the impact world to think about how you can create a standard approach to impact measurement. And um, I think they've done a, a pretty good job and have set out some principles and, and some kind of five questions about how you might go about doing that. I'll share on the chat later as well our impact uh, measurement approach at Nesta. <clears throat> we were one of the kind of founding or kind of early collaborators with the impact management project and a lot of the, the principles that have come out in in their framework um, originated in our work and, and, and that we use to this day in terms of how we look at measuring impact uh, risk and return and I can go into detail later on if it's if it's helpful that's great I think Steve and, and Vicky on your behalf Lisa just put some links up as well which is which is good and I, I like the idea of thinking about um, a, a, an approach framework rather than standard trying to standardise measurements because I think that that again empowers the individual organisations. Sean, you have your, your hand up. Do you want to come in? Yeah, I think uh, Matt, uh, great to be here, and I think the title uh, that you say, "People, Planet, and Profit." Um, when I'm talking through with with financial clients, so Sean Taylor from Mechanical Genuity, is that impact investing doesn't necessarily have to make a profit. Whereas you look at, if you look at ESG or B Corp, generally it's all linked to the profitability of the company. And we do have a wave of regulatory approaches coming across into to the UK. It's something we've kept on despite Brexit. Uh, we didn't keep the lorry drivers, that's a shame. Um, but it's um, yeah, SMCR. Um, and um, basically everyone's going to have to measure themselves on the ESG side. But that's directly linked. If they don't do things like that, could impact their profitability. Whereas impact investing... Uh, I always like the fact to explain to people that, yes, you're investing in impact investing, not necessarily you're going to make a profit, whereas ESG, as we've seen, especially during the pandemic, has made people a lot of money. Let's not beat around the bush. Yes, we've seen a slight dip in European uh, investment in ESG, but it's growing in the US. And we've seen in the last couple of days that people, are, that Europe's going back to China, going, you've got to sort this out on the whole ESG bubble. And I think that the, the people, people, planet and profit piece is absolutely key to this discussion in that if you do it right and you do it with the right company, actually can actually be profitable, even on the impact side. And I'm sure there's some very esteemed people on this call that will correct me on impact investing, but that's not the original driver 
when you're looking to talk to people about doing it, you know, it's actually doing the right thing as opposed to wanting to make a lot of money out of it. Whereas ESG, we can all turn around and go, hey, look at these returns you've seen in the last 18 months. I mean, they've been extraordinary returns in the in the last 18 months. And, and okay, maybe that's because we just picked some good good funds and some good stock. But I mean, it's extraordinary. And, and I think we've got to also make the split on people, planet and profit. The thing that worries me slightly is that, uh, and it's a bit odd, Mahir Mai is a middle-aged white bloke, beardy bloke going on about ESG, but a massive advocate, right? In terms of in the internal argument of a firm and the external. And that's where the whole greenwashing thing comes in. Don't just say you're doing stuff and you buy a load of Amazon stock and make it like, it's actually do it properly. So we've got to watch greenwashing. And I'm really worried that as happened in 08, for those of us old enough to remember 08, there was about six months of happy clapping after the, the crisis was averted and it started to sort itself out. But actually, are we going to snap back to where we were in the old normal as opposed to the new normal. I'm hoping and I believe that the investment in this people, planet and profit is such that it's going to continue because it's too long now to reverse what we've seen. Thank you, Matt. That's all right. Always well, good to have your contribution, Sean. Thanks for that. And I think, you know, what for me, what you highlight there is that there is a difference between the narrative around ESG in particular in the um, institutional and retail investment market versus other investment markets, and I've, there's a number of people on the on the on the uh, uh, call today who are in the the venture world. I think what we've certainly seen um, over the last eighteen months throughout the pandemic is two things: one, very strong levels of um, venture venture investment activity, particularly at seed and series seed to series A. That's continued, and a number of those businesses have been much more focused on articulating the impact component of their story and I, I think that's different to greenwashing I think they've re they've recognized the importance of of articulating the the, the objectives of the business and in the, in the in a way that, that talks to impact as well as talks to profit and I think in that venture space in particular there's a real opportunity there for for us to, to drive innovation in sectors that have an impact as well as a, a profit potential I don't think it will snap back. I think no, I, too, I, I agree with you, Steve. I, I don't think it will either. There's too too many sort of big macro pieces at play here, and I think also what you've got is you've got a, a generation now of of employees coming through organisations that are reaching middle management and above that yeah. are that, that that actually really genuinely are passionate about this, and it's yeah. not about just being seen to do the right thing. It's absolutely authentic. It's integral to their long term sustainability. And I, I know, you know we we sort of all read. Larry Fink's annual letters to his CEOs, and you know, if we don't, you know, serve a social purpose, then when, you know, they're not going to be investing in us. But you know, genuinely, I mean, I, I think first and foremost, you you can't be sustainable unless you make a profit, and you know, that's coming from a, a guy who runs a business that you know is very much there, playing a role that is hundred percent free for local good causes that we support. But our corporate partners will pay us to facilitate the service, and I can grow a business in a profitable way. I'm obviously taking decisions at board level that are in the best interest of all my stakeholders. So, you know, it's, uh, it's you know, that will be a, a backdrop and context for the way we run the organization. But I think we've come too far too quickly for us to snap back to a place where all of this unravels. And to Lisa's numbers that she was quoting earlier, there's masses, you know, that is now locked up in a world where, you know, it is in people's interest to run a bit, you know, to, to, to continue to maintain this, uh, this current trajectory. Kevin, you, you think you were first up with the hand, so I'm going to come to you first. So I work in a FTSE 250 company. We're on this ESG journey. And one of the things I see is it's new. I've been talking about it for four years, but nobody wanted to do anything because investors are not interested in ESG until they were. And then we got incentivized. And so now we want to do something, but we don't really know what to do. So what we've sort of started off looking at is but what's the standards or where are we going to put our flag in the ground and, and mark ourselves against? But ultimately, our discussions form around where do we want to sit in the pack? Like, do we want to be an A-grade student or is being average OK? And not just with our company, but actually a number of other companies I spoke to, being a C or D-grade is OK. We just need to get off the F-grade. What I've learned is from a corporate level, it's all about reporting, reporting, reporting. So we actually don't really focus on doing, doing, doing. It's like, right, how do we pull all of these numbers together 
to do that annual report. For my company, we stick it in the annual report. We might have a separate website coming up soon, but it's all focused on that. We're taking it to the board level, but there's nobody with experience of this. So they don't know because they're all former CFOs, chief HR officers or chief executives, but they haven't really been involved in businesses that have had to do ESG or impact. So they don't actually have the skill set to question anything. And I think that's one of the problems. It's been permeated because there's multiple reporting channels, as you said, and there's no standards amongst them. So it's everybody's just choosing, well, which one seems the right one or where do we think we can score higher? Because ultimately our investors are asking us, well, what's our reporting uh, and how do we score? And the reporting agencies themselves use algorithms. So they don't really deep dive your information. They're looking for things on your website because we actually asked some of them, well, how do we improve this? They said, well, just report something, put it on your website. So that's what we did. And lo and behold, we went from a D to a C in certain areas. And it's like, that was easy, wasn't it? But we're not really doing anything. So we're not focused on any impact at all. And I think it's becoming really easy now for companies to work out where they can do well at ESG and they target those areas. And rather than focus on actually, well, is this good for the profit, planet, any purpose, or even our stakeholders? Well, our investors are driving, our customers are asking us, let's just focus on them. The employee side doesn't tend to get a look in, yet they're a key stakeholder. I think that's really interesting, Kevin, and it's slightly depressing and really interesting. So I think, you know, I appreciate your honesty in, in sharing that. And I definitely want to come and come to Eleanor and talk about skills, because I think the point you made about skills is important. But before I do that, Ashley um, has had her hand up for a while. So Ashley. Hi, thanks. Um, so I'm actually looking for seed funding right now in an eco-fem healthcare business to like make it very convoluted. Um, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting as Eleanor and Lisa were talking about, um, you know, traditionally the investment space is, is dominated by white men to be blatant. Um, and the, a lot of these kind of, when you're thinking about social, thinking about the different aspects of that, um, there's still the, the monetary gain, but I'm wondering how to cut through and how do we, how do we think we kind of change the narrative around just looking for funding that's both socially impactful because we know there's a long-term benefit, which doesn't always come out in the numbers in the short term, right? With the um, with the need to also create that profit. So thinking about how do we change the narrative, but how do we add this and, and make it more important? And how as a as someone looking as a founder and someone looking for investment, like how to toe that line, if you will, between both hey, this, this could be economically feasible, viable, but also that there's a social aspect and not being turned down just because you're going in with that message. And that sounds like the perfect segue into it, Anna, to talk about what are, what are we actually asking our investors to, to think about? How are we training our investors to, to focus on some of those issues? Uh, good question. So basically the Newton course is for anyone who just wants to break into the VC industry, the skills that we're training them to do are around negotiations and, and chemistry and conviction. How do you know whether you're investing in the right person? The values, which I think is, is very important in, in the business world about, you know, are you connecting with that person on the same value level? We can teach the basics, but it's really what the students are doing outside of the program that really makes a difference. It's the networking, it's the doing the applied learning, they're getting involved, they're turning up to talks. It's really the network and the community that is going to help those students really learn the skills that they need to. Because if you can't pitch yourself in 30 seconds or pitch your idea in 30 seconds, you just will not get out there. If you don't really believe in what you're doing and really believe in what you're selling if a founder comes to you and you don't believe in what they're selling it's these kind of skills are just so important in the world of VC if you think about connections that they're making in a single cohort of 60 people you have to think about how many one-to-one relationships there are there and how many two-person pairs and the answer is 1,770 pairs in a single group of 60 and you multiply that by cohort and cohort and the network is growing the community is growing the skills there on networking and community that's where the impact is going to happen that's where they're going to learn how to break into different areas and connect with other people in industries they never thought of the health tech the ed tech you know the climate tech it's these these areas where 
the impact is going to be the greatest. You can teach people the basics, but really it's the connections and the networking skills that really is going to help these people. Probably a question for Steve. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking we've been talking about ESG in particular and, and ESG is broad, right? So E and the S and G are different things and, that, and that's quite a broad spectrum that they cover. We've had a lot of focus in, in recent years, rightly so, um, on, on environmental issues and in particular environmental reporting in the corporate world. Is there a danger that, that the social has become the sort of poor relation in ESG or, 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 is, or is now its moment? I probably wouldn't use the phrase poor relation. I'd probably say it's harder. And, and that's probably been the, the challenge. There's always been a, a desire, I think, for organisations to play their part in the, the, the social element and you know, that businesses can't survive in societies that fail. So there's obviously a vested interest in making sure that the S, the S element is addressed. I think what has sort of been one of the, the challenges and, and the reason it's been hard is, you know, how do you sort of tap into what your what you believe your community needs and i think if what covid has done is brought into sharp relief for all of us we are, we are part of a community you know we've, we've gone from doing the daily commute and living and breathing in the little bubbles that we might have existed in whether that be at work at home at play wherever suddenly we're 24 7 living and breathing one environment i mean we were chatting pre today pre um you know the session starting and eleanor was talking about how she got to know a neighbor better than she ever probably would have done otherwise. And it's sort of turned the volume up on the importance of local community. And and I, I think that has probably made it a priority and therefore organisations are taking it, it to the next level now and finding ways and means of doing it. So I think it's probably historically just been more of a, I'm not sure where to start, it's a little bit harder. And therefore I've perhaps been more focused on stuff where I can make some quick wins, perhaps by focusing on the E element but I think you know now more more than ever it, it is the moment for the S part. But it's obviously always been a priority. It's just not been as easy. Uh, it comes back to that that point about what's what's actionable and 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 how you know how can we get that sense of progress and impact more locally rather than what you know rather than making small contributions to grand projects can we make big contributions to, to smaller projects. Chris Willis Pickup, you made a comment right at the beginning which stuck in my mind about perhaps there was less dialogue about purpose. And I just wondered if I could pick up on that and, and if you wanted to say anything more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's something that comes, I think, from my experience moving into the charity sector. I moved to the Charity Commission from a business law firm, business, solely business-focused law firm. And the biggest difference I noticed there working with charities is that focus on purpose. Every charity has a purpose. It has to be for public benefit. It has to fit various categories of charitable purpose. That's, that's great. But what I found is that many charities were... At, equally as focused on preventing private benefits from their work. So they had an overall purpose they were trying to achieve. That's great. People were very motivated towards achieving that, you know, whether it's solving a disease or addressing poverty or homelessness, whatever it is. But what charities actually spent a lot of their time focusing on was making sure that no one had made any profit from it. So most of the entrepreneurial innovative projects involved some capital coming in or something new being done and possibly incentivizing someone to, you know, to run that business in an innovative way. And every time there was a discussion about the salary of that person coming in, or every time there was a question about the, you know, the percentage being paid on the loan that was needed to finance that, the focus was not about what could be achieved to support the purpose. It was about, well, are they making too much profit from this? And it, it feels like that's really held back the charity sector from leading in the impact space is because it feels unable to um, underwrite anything that generates private, private profit. That's one of the reasons I think there's been a shift away from purpose, where, where it's sort of the motive becomes all important to actually saying, well, how do we justify this? Or we justify it by, by measuring the impact. And then, then we can maybe say, well, actually, that salary is very small in the context of, of the impact it's having. But it's why, why my role involves social ventures as well as charities is because increasingly the organisations and people tackling the world's biggest problems are not charities, despite the fact they're set up to solve those problems. They are social ventures backed by a mix of private, you know, private and institutional capital. I think you're right, Chris. And the scrutiny that charities come under, um, you know, due to some of the work we do, um, we have very kind backers who provide scholarships for our students who, without those scholarships, would not be able to take part. But if we were a charity, the scholarship process is extensive, invasive. It's just not what we're about. At Newton, it's very difficult as a company that's trying to do the right thing and try and have serious impact that then gets scrutinized about how we spend the money 
Whereas, you know, we work as a not-for-profit, but we're not a charity. And so there's this terrible line of like companies who want to help, but they have they want to donate via charity, uh, a charitable way, and they want to have full oversee sight over exactly where that money goes. And that's just not real life. That's just not the reality of working in a not-for-profit. I do feel for charities who genuinely want to do good and are so scrutinized about every single penny. It's just not helping anyone, like you said. Nesta is a charity. Uh, we're actually a charitable foundation, but we are able to make investments for profit. So uh, as I was saying earlier, we invest in the kind of social ventures, Chris, that I think you're talking about. So fully commercial companies, but that have a, a social intent as part of their proposition. And the way we can do that as a charitable foundation is by saying, if we make a profit on those investments, it goes back into the charity for public benefit. So that money is recycled and is all, you know, we have to justify the investments that we're making on the basis of the social impact that they're going to have to justify against the public benefit test. But there is a way of, of making investments for profit as long as that money is recycled back in support of the charitable object. Another point I wanted to make on this was as a social venture, you cut off your options if you set up as a charity. You can't raise, ex- you can't raise equity funding. As Eleanor was saying, there's, there are so many constraints, but you can achieve profit and purpose in other types of entities. And the lawyers amongst us will be much more qualified to advise on what those look like. But you keep your options open if, if you go down the private company route. But you can bake into your constitution a social purpose. I always think about mainstream corporates probably simplistically at one end of the spectrum, social ventures at the other. In the sort of centre of the bell curve, we've got your average organisation that has an opportunity to do something without changing its status or its structure. And a couple of things that we mentioned earlier, I think Steve mentioned it around B Corp status and also things like the Better Business Act and so on. Yeah, these are these are these are ways in which we're seeing organizations think about not just how they can present themselves to the to the markets that they operate in, but actually how they can use those initiatives as frameworks to to start to change the way they do things in, in internally. Pro- probably a question, well, question for anyone, but probably a question for Chris or Steve, as they mentioned these uh, initiatives. I mean, what do we feel about about Better Business Act? What do we feel about B Corp? Is it is it enough? Is it the right is it the right approach? Uh, it's definitely a step in the right direction. It's a starting point. And I don't know whether there's anyone else on today's call who is a signatory to any of those or is is, is certified. I mentioned earlier we're we're a B Corp, um, and I would say it's probably one of the, the proudest things about working for for our business is that we are a B Corp, and it's a marketing tool in that we attract people who want to work for an organisation um, that is a B Corp. I'd certainly believe that it it frames for us you know, so many of the. Well, it frames all the decisions that we make from a strategic perspective. But I think the fact that you have to recertify on a regular basis is every three years now. And it's brutal. Uh, you know, you're changing your articles if you've never done it before. But even when you're going through the process the second, third time, as we're going through at the moment, you know, you're, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of time and effort to do it. It means that you're doing it for the, for the right reasons. And I, I, I think it's back to the point I think Sean was making earlier that you know, this isn't necessarily about impact investing but any business that is signed up to being a b corp patagonia is obviously one of the most famous ones out there it becomes incredibly aspirational to run an organization like that where you can be profitable but it's with purpose and you you're acting in the best interest of all stakeholders and i i think right now that's probably the most thorough of all of the the processes to go through and it becomes that kind of kite mark it will evolve but the bar keeps going up you know we're having to hit, hit higher targets now than we were when we first certified in 2015 and again in 2017. For you, Steve, is, is it actually making you do things differently or is it making you report harder and collect data harder? No, definitely do things differently. We've definitely had to check. We, we've had to make some difficult decisions. And you know, it's certainly, for instance, one of the things, as an example, we worked in a service office. So we can't control our office environment. Um, mm-hmm. And to that end, that sort of leads us down a path of making potentially some interesting decisions in the not too distant future as to where we relocate to, what control we can have over our own environment. We've looked at shifting pension plans and and the like as well, even looking at changing banks. So uh, no, actually, it's very much about action, action orientated to to use a phrase, rather than it just being about reporting on it. Yeah, that's really, really encouraging. We're even starting to see law firms become B Corp. So it must be must be getting some traction. Chris, any final thoughts on 
on the role of those sorts of initiatives, the role of the role of government programmes, things like the, the Better Business Act? Yeah, sure. So I think two points. One of them, I completely agree with Steve. You know, clients who've gone through the B Corp certification process say it, it's gruelling. And one of the only downsides of the programme really is the, is the burden for a small company. It can be a bit excluded from it when they're trying to do everything else at once. You can't. You need a certain scale really to engage with it. I know it has different levels, but you need a certain scale to have the time and attention to pay to it. In terms of what's coming down the line, I think it's interesting. The Better Business Act campaign actually uses a version of the B Corp wording that you put in the articles with an, with an extra bit about zero harm. So I think if we're looking ahead of how, how is the B Corp stuff going to develop, I think we're going to see B Corps coming under pressure to put they're not just we exist for this blend of purposes, people, planners and profit, and we're going to do impact reporting. I think the next thing will be, and we're also zero, committed to zero harm. So I think that's the next step for B Corps, and that, that's already wrapped up in the Better Business Act. I think, I mean, a quick comment on the Better Business Act. What it, what it basically would do is force all companies to be B Corps, at least in the legal, the legal changes that B Corps involve, make all companies for a blend of people, planners and profit. And I think as a campaigning tool, that's very effective. You know, we should be saying, yes, the corporate sector should be balancing those things. I have a slight concern if you just automatically you know, press a button, change the law, and all companies have those things. Is that really going to bring about change um, or positive change? You know, what, what comes next? Well, maybe shareholder activism, maybe shareholder legal claims against companies for breaching those duties. But actually, it's not necessarily changing hearts and minds. It's just changing the legal framework. And I worry slightly, you know, because look at something like the data protection changes. There can be some very positive things. It's also a huge gravy train for for consultants and other people, including some lawyers, to advise on this kind of stuff. And it takes the focus away from what's actually the impact of your your organisation. So I'd I'd quite like to be in a world where business better business that wasn't necessary as anything other than a campaigning exercise. But but nonetheless, if it came in, it would it would it would set a standard clearly. I certainly feel with with a number of these initiatives, you know, whether it's ESG reporting, carbon reporting. The reporting that's required for, for for accreditation, the focus is very much on what you're doing rather than what you're trying to achieve, and it's it's about inputs rather than outputs. And I think the theme that's run through today's conversation is actually the more we think about and are, and are able to articulate and then and then measure what we're actually trying to achieve rather than the things that we're doing, and um, we'll, we'll get a closer connection with that impact on the, on whatever the relevant stakeholder groups are um, that we're dealing with. I'm, I'm going to open the floor in a second for any further comments or questions or stories or anecdotes from, from all of you on the screen and, and conscious many of you have contributed already, but it'd be great to hear more. Um, but we, we're talking about responsibility and Eleanor has got parental responsibility. So uh, I know she has to jump off the jump off the line. So I just wanted to, before you do, Eleanor, say thank you very much for um, your contribution today. Really interested uh, to, to hear about the programme. And um, I'm sure I'm sure we'll all be looking up and uh, seeing how we can can help. Thank you so much. I'm going to pop my email in the chat. So if anyone would like to discuss further, then I'd love to um, be in touch. So thank you so much for having me, everyone, and enjoy the rest of the talk. So the floor is the floor is now open. Is, does anyone have any sort of reflections on what we've heard today or any any practical insights or, or, or problems they've not been able to, to solve that they wanted to share and get input on? Yeah, I have one for Chris, actually, a really, really interesting one with Chris's uh... Chris WP, that is, sorry. Um, sorry to ambush you, Chris, but um, I found in the journey, you know, um, we've heard Steve saying he's looking at banks and, 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 and different pension funds and so on. Have you found in your experience that actually one of the last adopters to looking at impact investing and indeed ESG investing seems to be charities? I mean, uh, maybe it's just peculiarly the ones that I know, but but they seem almost scared of, uh, of, of ESG and, and impact investing. Chris, have you got any insight in, in, in that for us? It's, it's definitely a live issue. The Charity Commission is consulting on responsible, responsible investment guidance. And it goes back to a point that Lisa was making very clearly earlier, is that charities can, can invest profit-making businesses, and, and they can broadly do so in a way that um, is consistent with ESG principles. But charity trustees have an overriding duty to sort of maximise the the money they make for their charities and when they're doing it with an investment hat on then it is, it's largely a financial assessment or at least the traditional analysis is it's a financial exercise and you invest in what makes the most money for the charity because the impact doesn't come from what you're investing in the impact comes from it's a, the use of that money within your charity to spend on charitable purposes and the very traditional legal analysis at least is you make as much money as you can from your investments without any regard for your for your purpose or particularly wider esg principles um, you know, you're a, a medical research charity. You don't exist to 
for climate change. You exist in a different category. You exist for medical research. So you shouldn't be accepting a lower investment return in order to benefit the climate. You might be able to do it if it's supported in medical research. Maybe you wouldn't invest in a tobacco company because it's not very, very consistent. But it's quite hard. Or it's, it, trustees have found it quite hard to justify a climate favourable investment when they're not a charity that has anything to do nominally with climate. And there is a big campaign at the moment to say, well, actually, it's, it's relevant for all the climate is relevant for all of us and for all charities. And that's that's an ongoing debate in the sector. But I think they felt a little bit hamstrung by this, this quite rigid demarcation between financial investment. And that's treated in one way in it by the tax authorities. And if you don't stick within the box, you get hit with a ton of tax charge as a charity. And then mission related investments, which is where your crisis or someone homelessness charity and they have, they have a crisis venture studio and they're investing to achieve their mission they're not solely doing that on financial criteria they can invest because it's directly going to achieve their mission there's a whole middle area known as mixed motive investment which are not widely accepted by hmrc and feel a bit more uncomfortable for, for charities so i think one of the reasons they're slow adopters is to be frank there's lots of you know, there's lots of volunteer boards and they're generally risk averse but the other reason is because the legal framework really encourage that but we might see that improve this this, this new response updated responsible investment guidance might might help that a little bit thank you very much <laughs> thanks chris that was really interesting and i was completely unaware of that debate so um, that's that's a that's a really interesting insight and and the, the general discussion about the role of charities is is an important one and you know i'm conscious that when i opened the discussion we were talking about business and individual and government and i didn't mention charities at all which probably tells tells its own story jill i'll come to you um, hello, everybody. Um, I'm Jill Ridley-Smith. I sit on several boards as a non-exec director, and one of them is the Digital Catapult Organisation, which um, some of you might be familiar with. Um, it's one of the Catapult Network, um, which are part government-funded innovation um, uh, organisations designed to further economic growth in the UK. And my point, I just want to make two points about um, firstly, I'd really like to see some something more from government about how to measure impact. We're funded through Innovate UK, and, and I don't see a great deal of leadership coming from them about this topic. One of the things we've had to do as a catapult is try and analyse our impact and look really, really carefully at impact measurement. So our goal is to, um, through advanced digital technologies, to further UK economic growth. So how do we evidence that we're doing that? How do we evidence spending the money on innovation in particular is is, come, is is producing the right outcomes. And we're just going through a project at the moment I've been involved with, which I, I cannot tell you has sort of blown my head in terms of the economists and the academics who are involved trying to measure this stuff. And I keep saying to our in-house economist, we have to make this so that the everyday person can end up understanding what you're doing. Um, and I will carry on banging that drum as we go forward because I mean I literally and I'm an economist in my original degree although you can tell that was probably quite a few years ago I did not understand 50% of the proposals that were put forward by these people who measure impact um, and just to sort of wrap it up you know we're driving this and we will report back to Innovate UK as to what we're doing but, but why is it not coming from them? You know, what, what is the government doing in putting some standards and frameworks in, in place? So um, that's my input into your discussion. No, really important questions. Wherever the frameworks come from, my takeaway is we need more frameworks. We need we need things that people can can engage with and, and try wherever, wherever that comes from. That's that's an important priority. I can't see any more hands up. So just wrap up with just give our give our three remaining key speakers uh, contributors just an opportunity perhaps to to leave you with a thought or two you know at a practical level what might you want to go away and think about in terms of your own organization and how you can start to get impact um on the agenda perhaps i'll come to chris first i think um i think my overall thought is that there is a sort of period of convergence i hope or discussion and convergence going on about what standards are jill has just said there's a lot of work going on work out how to measure things what should be measured what it kind of should look like and I don't think anyone really has the answers to that yet although there's been a lot of really good work but individual organizations the the best place to start is to look at their own what they know best what they do and what how can they improve what they do how can they can improve environmental impact or um, find a way to offer their services in a way that is more diverse or supports 
people who are less privileged. And that is what people know best. And probably with some time and attention, they can find ways to have much greater impact by spending time thinking about their own organisation rather than necessarily spending a lot of time um, externally um, trying to sort of map over the different standards. I do think they're helpful, but I think we'll probably find in 10 years there's a much more useful framework that everyone can start to use. Um, at the moment, it still feels like it's, it's slightly, you know, for the, for the consultants and experts to kind of work through and it haven't quite yet seen the, the version that every business can use. Focus on what you know best. Sound advice. Thanks, Chris. Lisa. I wanted to pick up on um, what Kevin was talking about earlier in his organisation, and it just kind of prompted me to, to think that whether it's ESG or impact, uh, if businesses want to become more responsible, it's not about a tick box exercise, it's about culture and leadership. If your culture and your leadership don't reflect the values of you know, what you want to achieve, then it's a bit of a non-starter. So thinking about, is the leadership authentic in its intent uh, in terms of uh, these kind of uh, more diverse objectives? And if so, how can those values be um, in, in kind of imbued into the culture and, and embedded across the organisation? Yeah, absolutely. It all comes back to culture. And um, I'll, I'll finish up this session by telling you about a podcast we're about to release, which touches on that, that topic. Thanks, Lisa. So final word to Steve. Um, well, I think, you know, I'd echo the sentiments of, of you know, both Lisa and, and Chris. I guess I would leave you with a, a word of encouragement, perhaps more than anything else. You know, that this, this is all, you know, to, to the, wider, the wider business world and charity world, as you say, you know, it's all very new um, and it's not easy. You know, we are, we are talking about a, a paradigm shift here um, and we're not all going to have the answers overnight in any shape or form. Um, and you know, the sorts of challenges that Kevin's described you know, are very, very commonplace. Um, and there will be all sorts of challenges along the way. We're, we're not going to solve it in a, in a heartbeat. And I think what we'll find is there are many, many bumps in, in the road. But I think what we know is that it's, it's absolutely got a degree of momentum behind it now, which means I certainly believe it's here to stay. And to the extent that there's, there's, there's no bad time to start, you know, one doesn't need to get to the, the top overnight. You know, it's, uh, you know, it is cultural, you know, and, and I think it's a extremely exciting time. And, and you know, that for me, I think is an important thing to hold on to that there's a lot here to be excited about. It's not going to be easy. It will be difficult, but you know, it is uh, an amazing time to be in, in any industry, I think, because it's all changing a pace. Really encouraging. Yeah. I like that, Steve. Thank you. Ashley, you just popped your hand up. So I'll give you the last word. Yeah, thank you. So I just wanted to say then, so how do we take that momentum? So we're all obviously very passionate about this. You know, Lisa talked about encouraging the government to do more. He was talking about you know, how we all have our, our place to play. But how do we make that a voice that is actually wants to be reckoned with, if you will? Because imagine the consumers, like the normal people that actually want to, you know, me, that want to make a change, don't know how to, but don't have the same voice, how can we take this and materialize it into something that actually going to, to make a change? Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, we certainly see that the Zebra Project as part of that. And it's about giving a voice to, to people so that, the, that that sort of collective experience can be shared and that collective encouragement can be shared. Um, but but ultimately, for me anyway, I I think you know, it, yes, it's important to give a voice to it. But it's but it's also important, and perhaps this goes to Steve's closing comments that not not to be discouraged by the scale of the challenge. You know, at the end of the day, we can all walk into our businesses tomorrow and start to do some little things that add up in a year's time or two years time, or or serve as an inspiration to other to our colleagues around us and start to change the organisational dialogue and the organisational experience. So I think. You know, for me, it's 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 important. It is important to have the right narrative there, but it's also important just to take personal responsibility um, and, and back, back to what Chris said: start with what you know best, which is what you can do, um, and what what you can influence. But you're you're right, Ashley. It's a really really important question. I'm very conscious of time, so I'm gonna gonna wrap things up. I said I just mentioned a podcast we're about to release, which may be of interest to you, which is. One we recorded a few weeks ago with an associate um, at Harvard, a lady called uh, Donna Hicks. Uh, Ashley's, Ashley's smiling. Donna's had a career in, um, in conflict resolution, international conflict resolution, um, and has worked all over the world, in, including working with Desmond Tutu, 
uh, in relation to the Northern Ireland peace process and reconciliation. And she she has written a couple of books and her latest book is, is called Leading with Dignity. And it's it's about this concept of dignity and how we can actually use our appreciation of dignity to inform um, how we build positive cultures in our organization. She takes her learning from, from conflict resolution in, in Central America and Northern Ireland and, and uh, the Israel-Palestine conflicts and takes that into the business world. So it was a really interesting podcast. And I, I think we've touched on some, some, of, the, some of the themes um, in a tangential way today. So I'd encourage you once we release that in the next day or two to, um, uh, to engage with that podcast. But look, thanks everybody for your contributions. Thanks particularly to, to Lisa uh, and Chris and Steve for, for, for stepping up to the plate and sharing their own experiences and look forward to the next uh, Zebra Campfire event. Thanks everyone.